Lieutenant Governor, welcome back to Point of View. Always great to have you. As, as usual, ton of things to talk about. We'll start here, though. Um, last Thursday, I believe it was actually one year exactly, we had the first COVID case here in North Dakota. I want to start with your assessment of the last year. What did North Dakota do really well in regards to COVID, and what do you think we could have done better? Well, I think with one word, it's balance. We were striving to balance the, the lives and livelihoods, and I, I hope I hope that's what people hear loud and clear when they have the, when they hear the governor speak. When in his pre press conferences, you're, you're constantly going through data. What's the latest and greatest as far as recommendation? We weigh them. We listen to the constituents. We listen to those in in leadership, in public health, and at the hospitals, at, within the state agencies, the National Guard, health department. Um, local public health, and obviously the schools, the businesses. And so it's been a year of trying to balance the situation that's been upon us. But but you, you think about where we are today. We're, we're so blessed to have such low positivity. Uh, we're, the variants are coming, but it's something where the positivity is staying down and we're, we're, we're still testing. So we make sure that that doesn't get away from us. And at the same time, you've got our own semblance of North Dakota herd immunity, beginning with the increase in vaccinations with the large number of positives that have been found over the last year. And now the, the vaccination in percentage is increasing. And we're, we're one of the leading states as far as getting the vaccination into people's arms. Uh, working through 1C is the prioritization level now. And I, and I have to tell you, I hear every day from folks that are concerned about wanting the vaccination. They're, they're, they're concerned. They're there's some fear, there's, 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 there's might be underlying health conditions. And so those that have underlying health conditions that, that I believe we're there now as far as getting that priority level. So everyone should be getting those vaccines that wants to be able to. And if, if you're not able to, please please share that with us. But we're, we're feeling good about the vaccination rollout as well. Um, the businesses and schools, uh, it's been a long year for businesses and schools. And they're open. We 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 we're always we're constantly striving to keep businesses and schools open as much as possible throughout the last year. Uh, the pandemic restrictions are 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 mostly released for businesses and schools. We have um, um, I'm not sure the percentage, but but schools are are moving towards completely being in full time full time in face learning, and uh, we're in hybrid learning for the most part of the first half of the year, and um, some remote learning from from the, the high school grades, et cetera, but we're getting back to normal there. And, and that's, that's paramount for our kids. Your heart goes out for kids in some of these other states where they where they did not have in-person learning and still are not having in-person learning. I, I can't imagine how devastating that would be for those kids. My, my three kids are age 10, 13, and 20, and they need kids. They need to be with their peers in their learning environment. And, and and so we're we're feeling blessed there as well. We're getting back to some semblance of normal in schools. Uh, last week was very, very, very welcome news after one year to have restrictions released on long-term care, to have actually CMS who had been, who came in late into the game, uh, later than the state. The state had been proactive on the beginning, but the CMS came in later and put in what we felt were harsher restrictions on visitation and long-term care, and, and now they're releasing as well. So looking forward to families being reunited in that long-term care setting, and, and it's not been an easy year for them. That's for certain, but it's certain. But it's been a long year for all of us. Um, you know, we we feel we'll feel its effects for a long time. Uh, yeah, we feel the, the economy being balanced. Uh, we feel our our unemployment rate is one of the low has had one of the lowest increments from beginning to end over the last year, and so we feel that you know also being 
being very cognizant of the effect on livelihoods has helped us keep our economy in as good a shape as as other states is, is among the best. And and that's with the pandemic induced crash in oil prices that that also hit us at the same time. So for our long for our unemployment to be in that four percent range with with the collapse in oil prices is is quite remarkable. But we see an uptick in those energy prices today and 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 unfortunately with some of the Biden administration policies, the prices likely will just keep going up. And so that means higher price at the pump, higher price for food, interest rates start going up as well. But but the fact of the matter is higher oil prices are helping us with our new budget numbers coming out this week. It's also helping us with that unemployment rate being lower and 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 hopefully we can move into this next year with a little bit of optimism for our economy. We're going to touch on a lot of things you just mentioned there, but I do want to share this with you. So I, I want to get your take on uh, if I can get this to come up in our stream here. So this is the graph, as you know, at the North Dakota Department of Health um, for COVID. And I want to share with you what's fascinating. You can see here the, the actual peak, sir, of COVID cases was November 13th. November 14th is when Governor Bergen put the statewide mask mandate in place. Do you think this is just simply a correlation or a causation? Well, if you, it depends which side of this issue you're on, Chris, because the people that were the people, <laughs> what side are you on? <laughs> the people that were asking us to put the mask mandate on didn't like seeing that rapid escalation in that curve and not having a statewide mandate where we had a lot of localities that already were utilizing that if they felt that was the best method for themselves in addition in, a, in addition to the distancing and the, the the restrictions on business activities and schools but as you saw it go from what is it 2900 to 5800 to 10,000 there was an increasing push from the hospitals from the healthcare providers from the feds from local public health to put the mask mandate on and and then as you see um, from that point you, you'd say that would be the peak and after that point um, the mass mandate stayed on until until into January. And so it it took the second half of that peak. And that's when we had the mass mandate in place from a statewide level. But again, there still are some local mass mandates occurring. There were before that point, And there will be argument for years to come on what was the best method. Some there are 15 states that do not have a statewide mass mandate today. There were there were still probably 10, 10 or 12 at that point when our mass mandate went in place. And, and there will be debate on on which ones of these, which one of these attributes were most successful. So but, just just for clarity, sir, I mean, do you think this is just strictly a correlation or was this actual a causation to the dramatic decrease in cases, meaning the statewide mask mandate? Well, Dr. Carson would say this this was a this was a prime uh, uh, one of the prime tools that we could use to actually bend this curve down. And, but the, he also states in addition to everything else that was happening from the local perspective, the local mandates, the distancing, the, the closure of, of during that time, we actually had a reduction in, in sports activities. So there were uh, the measures were picking up as that curve was picking up. So this is definitely one of the strong tools in the toolbox, but there will be a lot of debate to come for years to come. Why <laughs> there's still mandates in some places, the Senate just took their mask mandate off today. And so it's it's not being consistently applied, and and yeah, you've, you've hit on a, one of the one of the contentious items we're facing in the session. We've got a lot of them. You know, uh, Lieutenant Governor, you know this probably better than I do, but it is amazing how heated the mask thing is. I mean, you you post anything on social media about it, and poof. So I got to ask you this question, looking at this, because I know that you you're an accountant. You and Governor Bergham always said, "Hey, look, we're going to do this based on the data, do this based on the science." When you when you see 
this data, knowing that it peaked on the 13th and you see this precipitous drop after the mask mandate, do you think the governor should have implemented a mask mandate sooner? Again, that depends which side you're on. <laughs> there's states that had mask ma mandates before and after, and there's states that didn't, that never did have a statewide mandate that have a similar curve. But but some of the what we were doing at the time in September and October, as there was an increasing push to put a state mask mandate on, would be you know we would we would be on the radio, be on TV with you talking about look at these other states that have an increase in cases that have a statewide mandate. Is this the one? most important issue that you do when you're being responsible and the COVID etiquette is being followed. And, and again, there's a lot of, there's a lot, a multitude of different responses and, and mitigation techniques that helped. And, and you, you and I know there'll be books written on this and there'll be second guessing. Well, I think Fargo is going to finally get rid of their mask mandate tonight. And so I just wanted to get your take. So you mentioned about the businesses. We'll get to the education in a moment, sir, but I got to share a couple of interesting stats with you. So because of COVID uh, you can see here in North Dakota, was the third highest percentage rate of revenue drop as far as revenue. I, I'm assuming most of that's because of oil and gas, right? But then you look at this most recent uh, COVID relief bill, not one Republican voted for it, you're Republican. And if you look at the data, I guess I, maybe I should ask it this way. Do you support this latest COVID relief bill knowing that North Dakota, when it comes to dollars per capita per person, we came in at number five across the country? Well, if you look at what the response has been to that bill, is that it it very clearly goes to the metro areas that that shut down the harshest, and and they not only had the protests, but they had a lot larger amount of unemployment. They've been, you know, they've had kids not in school, and and that, you know, frankly, that's also where a lot of the votes came from from the red from the red state from the blue states in some of those metro areas. So there there are a lot of there are a lot of things being pushed back and forth on why the the formula is the way it is. But um, but what's what's fascinating here is we did have a large reduction in revenue and it's from the oil and gas revenues. That's why Alaska would have been at such a high point on the top of the list. Hawaii, because they completely shut down their tourism economy during COVID. But but what, what speaks again to where we are is we did not have to tap into our emergency budget stabilization fund. We did not we did not. I don't know if we got over eight percent in unemployment, but we settled down in that six range quite quickly. And now we're at four percent. And we were only at 2% before that point. And that is with a reduction in oil prices and only having 15 drilling rigs today. So our state economy has come through this remarkably. And, and there are concerns about the federal funds that are coming in. Are they, are they the one size fits all approaches never seem to work when you actually have succeeded on keeping your economy open and open more than others and keep your schools open and people have, have kept their employment. We did some rent bridge subsidies to keep people in their homes when you're having those tough times with the, with the hospitality jobs being, being reduced so much as they were during the first stages of the, of the shutdowns. And uh, we, we know there was a tremendous effect. So you've seen three or four different levels of grants coming out from commerce, pushing out the federal funds and our own state dollars to try to help those hospitality industries that were so gravely affected by the shutdowns. So I guess yeah. Um, what, what I'm curious on, and look, you could you could sell me either way, is the fact that you're right. So, so California one, I got large numbers, but when you break it down per capita, Wyoming actually was number one, a little over like $2,300 per resident. North Dakota came in at number five. We're getting over $2,000 per resident um, from federal relief from this bill. And so I'm, I'm just curious, do you support that? Because, hey, it's bringing in a lot of money from North Dakota. You're like, you know what? 
we don't want the federal money and I don't support that bill. We're very concerned about if how much of these dollars were needed, how much are they when when you're actually when you're actually taking out more debt for the federal government to send these this money out to the state, was it the right amount? Is it for the right things? Are are you able to use it for a long-term gain for a long-term positive impact on your economy and your state's future? And there's things that we would like to utilize some of these funds to do that we're we're thinking are not going to be eligible to utilize those funds for. And so the question of how much, I mean, I think you heard when when you see a such a partisan vote in the in the Senate and in the House at the federal level, you know that there were concerns about is it too much? Is it not as applicable as it should be to what the real impacts were? So there, there's a lot of concern with with the feds putting out this much money and taking out that much more national debt. How, how is it going to affect us? Is it going to result in inflation, uh, interest rates going up? You know, what what is, besides the deficit being increased? And so it's a larger percentage of our federal deficit having to be spent on on debt service for this new debt that's issued. There, there's a lot being a fiscal conservative. This is it's a challenge for me. Yeah, it's it's worth come out like this, <laughs> and it's a lot of money for the states. So it's sort of, so. I, anyway, sir, um, one of the things maybe that you learned as well, I'm I'm presuming, is as far as our uh, technology infrastructure. And I'm speaking specifically about the unemployment um, technology. I've got people that have been texting and emailing the show, going, "Hey, I've been trying to get my unemployment for months now. Any update on how that's coming as far as upgrades and people that are looking for the unemployment insurance?" Well, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to put in a brand new system to replace that dinosaur. But um, what was happening is is basically filling in the gaps, trying to process all those claims, and and talk about a group of folks that are unheralded that unheralded that had to put in 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 unbelievable hours and effort to keep to keep the dollars flowing out to people that needed those claims. And and we've got a lot of we've got a lot of uh, of of suggestions for IT spend to try to help us with efficiency in the future in case something like like this happens again. Think of how how well the technology like this works, you know. So, so who whoever had heard of having a Teams or a Zoom meeting before before the last year? I mean, this is something that wasn't in our lexicon, and, and it is today. And so, there's there's things that are positive for doing business for, you know, for going forward. In addition, if if, if something like this were to happen again, but but some of those systems will not be replaced based on bills that are currently in the session right now, and that's unfortunate because because a lot of them, when you're talking 20, 30, 40 year old technology, it was time. Yeah, it was one of those frustrating things, I'm sure, for you. You've mentioned education a couple of times, Lieutenant Governor. Um, recently, Superintendent Baszler uh, testified, and she said something pretty shocking, in my opinion. She reported that 27 to 28% of the students who had tested at grade level in 2019 for reading, writing, and math have now fallen below grade level. I mean, that's over a quarter of the students. I just want to get your take on that, and what do we do to make that up, make an impact? Well, that shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, especially if you have kids in school. I can tell you that that my daughter and my and me, as her third grade math teacher last year, weren't doing a very good job March, April, and May. It's just it, I don't have the training for that, and and it was it was a difficult time. And so so my daughter's score was reduced as as her as her percentile score on math going into this year, and and so you think about families where if you didn't have high speed internet, if you didn't have if you didn't have a parent there to help the kids with that full-time schoolwork that was happening at home. Um, you know, what's the effect? What's the long-term effect? We all know that kids need to be able to read by third grade. They need to have these different math skills accomplished and mastered by third grade. If that didn't happen, what's the long-term effect? So it's a, it's a grave concern 
for all of us of, of what the long-term effect of this is going to be as far as our, of where the kids are at percentile wise. And, and, but again, think of the schools that are in other states where they have not been face-to-face. -face. I, I, I hate to think what their percentages are compared to what Superintendent Baszler brought up. And so, to, so for us to be able to bear down and try to rise up that curve again, it's a hard thing for when the, when the kids are tracking to keep moving up that curve during the school year to try to approach the grade level for the next year. And now we have all that ground to make up. So it sounds like there are conversations about, about summer school, about extended period at the end of the year, different options, but, but it's, it's going to take time and there's going to have to be an investment of time by, by the kids and the, and the families and the teachers and the school districts to be able to try to bridge that gap and move us back up to where the, the percentage, the percentiles that the kids were pre pandemic. Kind of big picture question, and you, you touched on it working with your daughter. What have we learned from this experience? And maybe I should frame it like, did we just kind of take teachers in the school room for granted? Should we be paying our teachers a lot more money for what they do? I mean, kind of what, what's your takeaway from all this? I can't say enough for teachers and something where, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of professions that really stand out today after a year of this and nurses and, and doctors and those in healthcare and, and um, local public health and, and some of those folks that that sometimes we t might take for granted until one's sick well now they're now they're the, in the forefront and and leading the way through this but the teachers have had a very difficult time they're they're expected to be able to figure out online curriculum and how to deliver that in a short amount of time and then and then also have uh, kids coming in in different shifts coming in for on the hybrid some are here tuesdays and thursdays some are here monday and wednesdays and then uh, one of the things that happened at my son's school in the public school here in Bismarck was Friday ended up being like a catch-up day for the wow. for those, those kids that were were not able to keep up at home. Whether it's taking care of younger siblings, you know, doing the things you might do when you're at home versus in school, not able to to concentrate fully on on the classwork, or maybe they didn't have the high-speed internet connection, didn't have the technology available at home, and and so anyway, Friday was kind of the catch-up day. But the the teachers have really had to put in double duty, plus plus the concern of of the masks and are we doing enough and are we distancing are we distancing in the classroom their own personal concern about health for themselves and their families and and are and also there's a, there's the stress of covid over over all of this of just being a, a, a hard enough challenge in front of them with with having kids in hybrid let alone then have the the concern about covid itself and so there's a lot of stress in the environment for the teachers and and, and school administrators and, and our hearts go out to them and as well as our gratitude Maybe you guys already done this, Lieutenant Governor, but this is a comment from producer AJ. Is there something that you under Governor Burgum could do for like a special proclamation to honor our teachers, educators, health and emergency workers? That's a good idea. I, I you know, I believe that we've we're in the process of doing some of those things and you'll see one at a time, but that's that's a good point to single out the teachers and it it and and probably now before the end of the school year, you know, you get to the end of the school year and you take a breath and and, and get through graduations, et cetera, and, and hopefully have some normalcy at the end of this school year. But but no, that's a good point. Well taken, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, again, that was producer AJ. So thanks to producer AJ. Thanks, for AJ. I, I think it's a great idea because I think we all learned like, wow, these teachers are amazing. I mean, you know, like you said, you're working with your daughter, you know her, you know her learning modalities, whereas this teacher's yeah. gonna do it with 20, 30 different people and they have home, I mean, I, I just think it's incredible. So um, let's move on to this. So tomorrow you're going to talk about the economic impact of energy here in the great state of North Dakota. Um, if you want to share with the audience sort of what you're going to share there. But I think one of the things that shocked me that you said, Lynn Helms has said this is we only have 15 rigs going in the state right now. Yes. And, and so 
it, it's $60 oil pushing $70. We should have 50 to 60 drilling rigs and we normally would, except we don't have time for this topic on the show today, but but the DAPL pipeline uncertainty is really leaving questions in the in the in the minds of the Bakken investors and the oil companies that have have their that have their holdings here and have their minerals here. Um, the there would be room to bring those those rigs in with the the pad drilling that's available with the the permits that are available. But there's a lot of uncertainty on if something happens where that the DAPL ends in a poorly and the pipe has to be emptied and taken out of commission that they, they won't be able to get their oil out. So we've got a real infrastructure concern right now in the Bakken and, and that that's probably the number one driver of why you're not seeing the drilling rigs follow the price up. And so we've only got 15 and that does not hold our production at the level that we're used to. That's not gonna keep us at the million two barrels a day that we have today that we're enjoying that we're seeing some positive budget revisions because of the higher prices with prices being solidly in the 50s and 60s for oil, but but the lower the lower drilling rigs uh, means that our, our production will start to taper down. And the what we're pre what we're presenting tomorrow morning is another impact report that was done by Western Dakota Energy Association, North Dakota Petroleum Council, um, just with a snapshot of what what does oil and gas do for the economy of North Dakota and how are those dollars distributed out statewide. So there's a county by county charts of how much oil tax revenue you're receiving, whether it's water money or it's property tax buy down or whatever may have you. And so it's a it's a good thing to keep everybody on the same page that not only is agriculture important for all of us, but but so is oil and gas. Lieutenant Governor, I want to be respectful of your time. So a few more minutes here and a couple more questions. So you mentioned about the uncertainty of the code access pipeline. A lot of people probably aren't following as closely as you are. I hear there's a hearing coming up on April 9th. Like, what's your gut say? Are we are we going to continue to have oil flowing through there? Or what say you? Well, hopefully they have a similar response to last time where they they think about the fact that this this was approved and permitted under under the obama administration the corps of engineers are the ones that did the study and they de they determined that environmental assessment and ea was appropriate versus the eis environmental impact statement eis would have been done prior and would be done if it was a greenfield project but this this pipeline went in an existing pipeline corridor where the northern border natural gas line goes, where there's a transmission line going the same the same corridor. So this ground had already been stirred, it already had been broken, and so they de they deemed that an EA was appropriate. And so the the project was permitted. Billions of dollars of private money was spent. The the investors uh, had two or three years now of operations with with no with no safety glitches at all. And to think that you could have a permitted project. With with a public infrastructure put in with completely private money that would be that would be told you have to stop you have to halt production stop production empty the pipe and wait for a longer EIS is is appalling. It's something where the 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 rule of law would be in question for infrastructure projects and and would would those infrastructure investors trust the United States of America as a place to put in infrastructure like that this interstate infrastructure that that goes between jurisdictions that that would be the question. So it's it's really it's, it's really going to be an important conversation and decision at the federal yeah. level. Two more questions, sir. One is, I'm sure you're having some of these conversations. Um, based on your conversations and what you know, what's the future of Coal Creek Station? Future of Coal Creek Station looks very promising. We've, huh. we've been working for a year plus to, to make sure there's partners involved that, that would continue operating it as a coal plant. And in addition to all the opportunities that are coming forth from this administration, from where the energy industry is going and 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 there were rumors that the only option for this was to close down the plant 
and take over that DC line that, that takes power directly from Underwood to Minneapolis and, and load it with wind. And, and that will be part of a solution going in the future. But, but uh, with the moratoriums that were put in place locally, the only, the, one of the only things that would lift those moratoriums short of some kind of court action is to, to see that coal plant continue in operation. And so, so there, there are operators looking at this plant that would keep the plant operating, that have the ability to do some things that are more nimble, more, more uh, investor mindset, more you know, future growth oriented than what GRE, Great River Energy, was able to do themselves. And so my understanding is they're very thankful with the opportunity coming forward and, and um, so as would be North American Coal, who's the, who are the strong partners in the, in the project is always with their, their minds being those that, that feed the, uh, the plant. And, and so we're very positive that it looks like a good future forward for Coal Creek is possible. Hopefully to hear something within the next few months on that. We've been waiting for a long time. It'd be nice to see something public as, as they're finishing out their due diligence because there's a lot of angst and a lot of, of questions and concerns in coal country. Those families are very concerned about their futures, but you move in immediately on to the other projects. Well, you know what's happening with Basin, what's happening over at Coyote Creek with the different ownership group of that plant and the Leland Olds, the Antelope Valley, Dakota gasification, uh, Project Tundra, is that gonna move forward with, with Minn Kota, with BNI over at over by center and, and on, on that location on, on the young station. So, I mean, that it's something where we have to get serious about investing money as a state into CCUS, carbon capture utilization storage, and keep the base load power in place so that we don't get cold in the wintertime. We don't have something happen to us that happened to Texas, but we also have to be responsible for knowing that this world wants to see less carbon dioxide and we've got the technology available with CCUS technology. We just need to be able to figure out how to capitalize that with, with some assistance from the state and with the private investment and get that moving forward. And there's, there's a bright future ahead. That is great news to hear, Lieutenant Governor. So thank you for the update on that. All right, I got to ask you this. This was two weeks ago tomorrow. Uh, Governor Burgum held, it looks like, some kind of Zoom call. He said there's 120 people on this call. You can hear him use the word urgency here, but he talks about China's People Liberation Army did a cyber attack against North Dakota. I want to play a little bit of this for our audience, sir, and then just tell us how serious this is and, and what's what's happening, okay? Us people in. So thanks for uh, for taking your time on a Friday afternoon, given the urgency of the situation. I think, as you all might know, that uh, the state of North Dakota was involved in attack uh, by nation state actors. Well, we've talked about this before. That uh, here we are, cities, counties, and the state were on the front line of uh, international attacks, and so we should think of this uh, that war in modern right now, 2021. War cannot be separated from cyber war, and cybersecurity is our defense against cyber war. So we're being attacked, uh, in this case, uh, yesterday by China. Uh, we know that North Korea, Iran, and Russia also have got heavy investments in uh, pain. So those are some strong words, Lieutenant Governor. Is Governor Bergham suggesting that that was an act of war by China against the U.S. and North Dakota? Well, you've probably heard it before that the, the wars of the next century will be will be in the battlefield of IT. And and what we're seeing and what we've seen for the last four years is 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 active active intrusion attempts by by Russian, North Korean, Chinese sources. And and we see them here at the state government. And it's not it's not just on, on federal government and in Washington, DC, but you see that with what happened the other day was with local uh, local cities and school districts ended up having their email server shut down from from the attacks from from this this particular Chinese actor that the governor is mentioning, and you know there 
what's happening is they try to go through a weaker component and then get towards someone's login or someone's access point into a federal, uh, you know, a, a federal, some federal jurisdiction they're trying to get to, say, say up on the border, say, you know, the missile codes or something in mine. And I mean, they're trying, whatever it may, may have you, they're trying to get to some, somewhere within the federal government that has, that has a connection to that person in, in local government with an nd.gov email. And so, it, it's pretty frightening, and, and we're seeing different bills coming through, trying to ironically trying to peel off the NDIT and Sean Riley's jurisdiction over over uh, desktop services and and um, IT services. And so we tried to get unification of IT pushed through last session, succeeded on some of the lar some of the larger agencies coming into the fold, and and now we're seeing some of that starting to peel back with legislative council going independent and some of the elected offices going independent and. We just saw what happened with with cities and and, and local government uh, with the attack last the last week or so ago. That my understanding was, city of Williston was three days without having their email, and and the also the understanding is that 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 Chinese actor, the, the 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 hackers were in charge of those those accounts. And so, what did they do with them? We don't know. So it, it's mysterious. Wait, can you can you run that by us one more time? So the city of Williston was out any without any email, and these people from the China's People Liberation Army were running those emails and we have no idea what was being sent out or put out that that was the nature of this attack was they were taking over control of all of the email servers that were not in the cloud so the, so you saw some of this it's hard to follow but some of the press releases from microsoft on what was hacked and what was not and it's to do with office 365 email accounts but if they were in control yes they were able to have control of those accounts and, and all the email information that was in there Incredible. One last question for you, sir, because I got an email from somebody because I live streamed some of that uh, meeting from a while ago. And someone said, hey, if they're hacking these local entities, political subdivisions and states, what allows us to have such surety, surety that they haven't hacked any election um, software? Just your thoughts on that? Any any information takeaway from that suggestion question? I sure haven't dug into that issue at all. There's, there's a lot of conversation there. I thought one of the one of the best interviews I've seen on that topic was was right here on your show with Kel, with Congressman Kelly Armstrong the other day. So I know there's going to be a lot of focus on on election security as we go into the 2022 cycle, and then it's and it's necessary and needed. And you know these the local officials try try to keep the integrity of their own jurisdictions to absolute maximum, and, and so do the secretaries of state. And and so we've got to just make sure they've got the support they need to make sure the technology is secure. Great stuff. Lieutenant Governor, I know you're uh, super, super busy, so we appreciate the time and the insight. We'll do this again soon. And thanks for all your hard work, sir. Thanks for the opportunity, Chris. Appreciate it as always. Take care. Thank you very much. God bless. All right. Stay with us. we got a lot more coming up here on Point of View. We are celebrating America. You're going to find out why and what coming up right after this. As always, please share your point of view with us. Email us, text us, leave us a voicemail. We'll be right back.